0: I'm Dr. Terry Fisher, a physician and voice technology futurist. Voice first technology is rapidly becoming the operating system of our lives, and it will completely revolutionize the way we experience healthcare. Let's talk voice. Hello there, and welcome to Voice First Health episode 45. It's a real pleasure to have you along for today's episode, and I have another special guest for you today a really, really impressive person who's doing some impressive work in the voice space. I'm speaking with Rupal Patel, who is the CEO and founder of Vocal ID. Vocal ID is an incredible company that is doing some amazing work. They're looking at creating synthetic voices from voice recordings of real people, and they are able to produce. Synthetic voices that are so lifelike that it is actually being used as a way for a person that does not have a voice or a person that is going to lose their voice to be able to still have a voice. Pretty incredible stuff. So I'm going to let uh, RuPaul tell you all about it and let's dive right into the interview. All right. Hey there, RuPaul. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you on today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Terry.
0: I am fascinated by what you are doing with Vocal ID, and I want to get into tons of information, all of the stuff, all the great stuff that you're doing. But first, I think uh, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners.
1: Sure, thank you. Um, my name is Rupal Patel. I am the CEO and founder of Vocal ID, which is a voice technology company. I'm also, a professor at Northeastern University in Boston.
0: Fantastic. And what is your background? What's your sort of academic background? What what training have you had?
1: So I'm a speech scientist. I started off, um, you know, as a speech-language pathologist and then went back to school to get my PhD in speech acoustics. Um, and then I've been on the faculty at Columbia University and at Northeastern University uh, after graduating.
0: Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. Already things are starting to click here. So speech-language pathologist in the voice space. All right, making some sense. Now, the question is, how did you transition from that to basically voice technology?
1: So the work that I do in my lab, I'm cross-appointed at Northeastern University in computer science and in speech and hearing technologies, um, or speech and hearing sciences, sorry. And so my work is at the intersection of learning about how people uh, produce speech, both kids as well as adults and individuals with speech disorders. And we take that basic science and use it to develop new technologies that can help and assist them in learning how to speak as well as coping with different kinds of speech disorders. So that's how the interdisciplinary aspect comes in. Um, a lot of my early work um, and as, uh, as a researcher was in developing new assistive technologies, but in the last decade or so, we've also been learning working on learning technologies, So it's very interdisciplinary, the work I do, um, really bringing together those two threads of research.
0: That is great. That is great. And so talk to me a little bit about the origin of vocal ID. So how did, how did you come up with this particular idea? And how did that start?
1: Yeah. So Vocal ID is a project that started in my lab back in 2007, Um, and what it did is it actually brought together the two threads: the basic science and the um, the assistive design of assistive technology. My lab is called the Communication Analysis and Design Laboratory, Um, and I'm actually been on leave from the university for the last uh, a few years um, to really just focus on Vocal ID. So it started because we were finding in the basic science work that individuals who couldn't speak clearly um, had, you know, severe neurological disorders of speech production would still be able to control certain aspects of the voice. And these aspects are called the the prosody of one's voice. So changes in pitch, changes in loudness, changes in duration. Um, And those are many of those cues are also identity bearing cues Um, and at the same time um, of like finding that there, there was some consistency in their voice, I was noticing that many of these individuals had to use assistive technologies to communicate because their speech wasn't clear enough to interact with people that were unfamiliar with them. Mm-hmm. And when you looked at the voices that were used on those assistive technologies, we're talking way back in the early 2000s right now. Um, they were really just a handful of voices then. You know, you've heard Perfect Paul voice, you've heard Stephen Hawking voice. And I mean, that voice is not just used by him, it was not just used by him, but, but by many, many people, right? And so when that, that juxtaposition of, actually there's a lot of, of uh, aspects of the acoustic signal that are preserved in those who can't speak and have to use devices to talk, and the fact that you know we were giving them just all generic voice boxes, um, that was that early realization that we can put these two together. And it was actually at a conference that I thought, "Geez, how can this be possible? If there is preserved uh, vocal abilities, we should be able to give that a young girl a voice that suits her and fits her rather than a, a man's voice, which is what was what I heard around me."
0: Hmm, that's really interesting. And so this vocal ID company developed out of that. Fantastic. Um. So now let's talk about, um, you know, once you've developed this Vocal ID, what are some of the things that you're actually doing now with the, with the service, with the company?
1: Yeah, so the first few years, so Vocal ID um, basically it went from the lab, you know, we moved out of the lab in 2015 and uh, got some funding from the government to take laboratory-based science and turn it into commercial products um, from the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. And since 2015 through 2017, we're mostly focused on, um, getting that technology ready to be used um, and integrated with existing assistive technologies, and focusing on that early beachhead of those who use assistive technologies, um, and then in 2017, with uh, more and more devices starting to penetrate our world, like thinking about you know the Alexas and, and Google Homes and so on, we started seeing well, there wasn't just a need for uh, voice and custom voice on on assistive technologies, but the rest of the world was also going to need voice eventually. And so, you know, we kept, we, we kept refining the technologies, um, the the custom voices that we were building by 2018, we started seeing more interest from broader market um, applications. So apps that talk, um, didn't want to just have their apps sound the same as Siri, Alexa, um, you know, and, and, and so now it's, right now we are working with uh, companies um, across a variety of different verticals that are interested in creating a custom voice identity for their product or their brand
0: so that's fantastic can you explain a little bit about why that is important why is it important for somebody to have a custom voice as opposed to just using the stock voice that comes out of these smart assistants
1: well I think a lot of it has to do with um, you know a the company wouldn't use the same logo or a stock logo or even colors on their website or, you know, voices identity. Right. And if you're a voice product and your voice product sounds like every other voice product. Um, well, how does how does the customer actually identify with your brand? It doesn't. Right. And so I think that it's a very short-sighted to just kind of use a, a plug-in voice. Um, you know, yes, first poly voice is available and it's, it's just easy to use. But if you want to make a connection with your audience about your product, that's a way that, you know, people spend tons of money on branding. And yet if you're a voice product and you have a generic voice, I mean, what are you saying about your product?
0: Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And so what what does the process look like if somebody wants to create a custom voice using vocal ID? How does that actually work?
1: Yeah. So um, when you make a synthetic voice, you have to start with um, recordings of a human being. So, and the reason that you, you start with that is so that it sounds as natural as possible. So all the voices you hear today um, in the world around us are, you know, the uh, synthetic voices like Siri, Alexa, and so on. They are made with a human who recorded that that speech initially. The current methodologies that you hear most often. Are what are called concatenative speech, where you glue together little bits of the speech sounds and you create these voices. Um, what we are doing now at Vocal ID and many other um, other companies are starting to do this is called parametric speech synthesis. So there, you're actually um, having the, the uh, voice actor or whoever that you're making the voice for. Um, Do the recordings and then rather than taking little bits of their speech and gluing them together to create this new um, voice, you're actually trying to learn the pattern. So it's based on deep neural networks and and machine learning technologies where you give it the human speech data and the computer algorithms are learning how how that individual speaks and then trying to emulate that um, when you type in something new. So the process goes something like this. You have the individual read somewhere between three, uh, two to three hours of speech, and they do that on our platform. It's um, We call it the Human Voice Bank platform, and we've developed that for our, our individuals who couldn't speak, but we've actually have expanded it now to our enterprise platform as well. Um, you are given text to read. Uh, stories, content, whatever. Um, and then those recor- the recordings, the audio samples are fed to the algorithms in order to learn the speaking patterns. Um, once the, the model is trained, you now have a, an engine where you can type in any novel text and um, basically it will sound like the, the speaker. So that's what it is. If you're you're training a model, a computational model of speech, and then once you've trained it, you can type in anything and and produce a sample of voice that sounds like that.
0: Wow! And the the speech or the text that you're getting the person to record, is there anything yeah. specific about that that has been designed, or could it be anything?
1: So. Um, we, have, we started off with very specific kinds of utterances because we um, wanted to get the whole coverage of um, the sounds and sound combinations in the language. Um, the thing is, what we've learned is with the newer techniques, uh, as long as you have enough data, you still need coverage, right? Like if the system has never heard uh, you say certain kinds of sounds, like the chest sound or the y sound, which maybe are more um, infrequently occurring, then it's not going to learn how to say that because it needs that data to learn from. But what we've also found is that um, the preciseness of that, or like making sure that you reduce that list is, is not, hasn't really been um, it it hasn't really been uh, that beneficial to like cut down that list further and further. We need more in terms of the variety of the way people say things, the prosody. It's not just the speech sounds, but you really need to get the, the context of the way that people are speaking the um, those utterances, because that's that's going to be related to style. So, we've been experimenting with a, a lot of different ways to improve the understandability of the voice, which I think is pretty good these days, but it's the naturalness that continues to really um, be the thing that we need to work on in speech synthesis. Like, you know, how do you know that that's um, not a human? Usually, you know, not because it pronounces the words and, and the sounds wrong, the consonants and vowels wrong. So usually, you know, because it's pronouncing or it's saying it's pausing at the wrong time it's you know got the wrong tempo and the wrong cadence um that's what's giving away synthetic speech today um when people are listening to it like you can tell it's not necessarily a human but that gap between human and synthetic speech is really starting to close these days
0: right so that's interesting so it's not just the actual phonemes or the individual pieces of the speech but it's actually like you described the cadence as well that the the model is learning from if i understood you correctly
1: Yes. Um, and in previous methods, um, I think that was what was really limiting is the ca- the prosody, the cadence, that those aspects um, really couldn't be captured well. Because if you think about it, if you're gluing together sounds and sound combinations, you're getting them from different aspects, you know, from different positions in a word or in uh, different positions in a phrase, which means that the pitch might be changing and you might hear those cha- those jumps in the naturalness of the voice right um and now with these newer methods you're in fact learning all of it at once um which which really makes it a very powerful way to create speech
0: yeah, that's amazing that's amazing now i want to talk about something else that you alluded to that sounds absolutely fascinating and you talked about the uh the human voice bank so can you explain a little bit more about that this is this is incredible to me
1: Yeah. So the Human Voice Bank was an initiative that we started really early on when we started the company, because when we were making voices for people who couldn't speak, um, they could still vocalize. So we would get some sound from them. And the initial technique was you get a little bit of sound or whatever's left over from the person who couldn't speak. But then you have to find a surrogate voice donor. So a healthy speaker or typically developing speaker who can produce these uh, you know, two, three, at that point, actually, it was more like five to seven hours of speech. Um, and what we would do is mix the sound sample that we got from the, the recipient who's going to reuse this voice and the speech donor that matches them and create a synthetic voice for them that was the combination of the two. We call that a bespoke voice. So we needed volunteers. And the reason we needed volunteers is because, there was no way we could hire voice actors to do this. It was just going to be too expensive to do for somebody who's could who couldn't speak. So we created this massive uh, data set of people from around the world. That's actually 26,000 people that have contributed to the voice bank today. Um, they're from 110 countries. They range in age from 6 to 91. It's an incredible effort where people contribute their voice, their recordings. Not everyone has completed the full set for each person, but... This data set ends up being how we can create voices for those who can't speak. Um, But in addition, as we look at it now, um, though we don't use any of the voices from the voice bank to create a voice for an enterprise client, the interface that we created, which was essentially an online recording platform, you go to the platform and it, um, it guides you through reading, um, different kinds of contents, you get to choose whether you want to read about, you want to read poems, you want to read, you know, TED talks, you want to read, you know, interesting information, whatever you want to read. So you read that stuff um, and we we try to give you things that will balance out the um, kinds of sounds and sound combinations we need, as well as the cadence that we need, right? So you can't have only statements because then you won't be able to see a question and, you know, think about all of those nuances. Um, and, that's what it is it's a plat- and it's an easy to use platform now i mean 26000 people with like no background in this have used it it means it's been tried well enough right huh. um, yeah. so that's where you record and what we're finding is not just people who are volunteering their voice were doing that we've also learned that many individuals who had the you know were about to lose their voice they had head and neck cancer and were going to have a surgery to remove their voice box or part of their tongue Rec- would record on that data set uh, on that voice bank. And then we would be able to create a voice for them, with just their recordings. And we call that a vocal legacy voice. And so we are, we now have customers who, who were born with some condition who couldn't speak at all, or maybe lost their voice and couldn't record ahead of time. We make voices for them, we make voices for individuals who, you know, can bank their voice ahead of time. And then we also create voices for our enterprise clients with voice talent who record on the platform um, and that that data is actually kept separately. But it's the way that we gather the data is the best way to think about the voice bank.
0: That's incredible. And I'm assuming you must have some pretty powerful use case stories now of people that have used this and the way it's impacted their lives.
1: Yeah, I think I'd say the most powerful are the ones where, um, you know, you're, you're, You have a few days to you bank your voice because you know you're going to lose it. And these they, they had two options prior to this. One was an electrolarynx where you hold it up to your throat um, and use that as the sound source. And the other is um, is when you can use a, a TEP valve or a tracheal esophageal puncture valve, where they basically have a, a puncture in their in their throat and they're using that to valve the air and kind of create the noise source. Um, The the latter is very invasive. Obviously, it needs to be taken care of every few weeks because of the secretions and stuff. The former is super robotic, and so now you had a new method where if they banked their voice ahead of time, they can type on their phone um, or any mobile device, and if you know, if we have our engine on it, the voice comes. It comes out like um, their voice before. Of course, they have to type and to talk, but um, it's just it's an alternative, uh, especially. in noisy situations, right after the surgery, all sorts of things like that. So we have some really powerful stories of people that sometimes, you know, they just use their, their voice, their vocal ID voice, during the three or four months of recovery right after laryngeal surgery because they have no other way to communicate otherwise. And then as even as they get through voice therapy and speech therapy and learn even the other methods, at least they have an option of communicating and saying, what their needs are, telling people that you know, sharing their desires and needs. It's it's really really important to have multiple methods of communication.
0: Wow, that that's really incredible. Is is the engine? If somebody were to use that and they put it on their phone, as you said, so is that all local on the device, or does it use? Or is it connecting the internet through a cl- through the, like a cloud based service?
1: Yeah. So for. For assistive technology users, they it's it's local, it's embedded um, because they're most of times um, their devices, if they're paid for by insurance and so on, are are not connected to the internet and they have to be locked because otherwise, you know, basically, I guess their their rationale is that the government's buying you an iPhone, right? The thing is, they're using it for their daily communication, so they end up doing these weird things where they lock the devices, and so it has to all happen locally. Um, but we do offer for our enterprise clients, we have. Uh, a web API, and 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 you wouldn't, you kind of wouldn't use the embedded um, options for most cases because the more powerful methods of us for for speech synthesis require greater uh, computational um, resources. So we're now on generation four of our speech synthesizer. Um, the assistive technology users can really only use generation three because that's what would work on their devices. Generation four needs to be used using uh, web API
0: uh gotcha interesting and and another thing that comes to mind when i hear about this is um security like as as we move forward with these with these synthetic voices and so on could these be used for you know not such (laughs) great purposes and how do you protect that what sort of thought process has gone behind that
1: um well thank you for bringing that up because it is such an important thing so actually last year we were approached by a uh a large financial institution to um, uh, to basically uh, test their voice authentication system. So you think about now a lot of banks where you're in fact... accessing your account using your voice right you you know, it, your voice is your password they say um and so there's an authentication that's ha- happening about your voice you're getting there these systems are using a, a voice print and con- you know connecting it to whatever they've saved before as the technology uh, you know gets better for speech synthesis um it is going to be more and more difficult not just for machines to recognize but also for humans to recognize that this is not that this is the individual that is calling right so they approached us to say can you um we understand you're making these voices for people um, and you're, you're making the, t- the technology cheaper and cheaper because it used to be that speech synthesis would cost hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars to create like bank of america recently made a voice and it's you know it's in the millions of dollars siri cost millions of dollars produce, right mm-hmm. We're creating voices for significantly, orders of magnitude less, right? But there is a cost. And so one of the things we did last year is we did some penetration tests, you know, against these voice authentication systems with our synthetic voices we've built, generation two and three voices. And we were able to actually penetrate, not for all the voices, but for some of them. And so that got us thinking that, you know, it hasn't even gotten, I mean, those voices were not such that if you had a human listening to them, you would know that it's synthetic, but it still fooled the speech the speech recognition system, the, the speaker identification systems, and so we got concerned about that. So we've we've done a few things. One is we are working on um, we have we had a watermarking system for the voices or audio steganography, it's called, and the other is also creating tools to be able to um, recognize synthetic voices. Sort of uh, their countermeasure tools, so you can separate synthetic voice from human voice. And as the algorithms get better, it's going to be an arms race to kind of keep that going. Um, But it's true. Every technology that we have developed in our history for good has been misappropriated at some time. And what we're trying to do along with actually, um, along with some other companies that are creating synthetic media is really trying to get ahead of this, you know make sure that it doesn't get co-opted for negative uses
0: that's really interesting because there's this sort of dichotomy there where you're trying to create synthetic voices that are as natural sounding as possible but on the other hand you want to have some type of signal in there that allows you to identify it as a synthetic voice so
1: yeah. it's very interesting I call it, I call it the moonshot like if we can create you know incredibly um, I don't come, not compassionate but like realistic sounding and um unique voices that are compelling voices uh as i meant to say you know if we can create that without being deceptive um and with the ability for us to really make separation between our physical world and our virtual world i think that's a really challenging thing to do and um, that will i think that's the moonshot for synthetic media um so one of the hard things is that you know every next that's happening these days um, in, in synthetic voice and, and actually in synthetic media technologies is that everyone wants it to be hyper-realistic because they think that that's really, you know, they want to be able to use it for lots of different applications, but there's a cost to that. So we have to be, I think, really, really, really careful and considerate about how do we do that without fooling people or tricking people, you know?
0: Yeah, that, that's a really, really interesting point. So that's fantastic. Um, maybe I'll just finish off with one, one last question here. And, and I'm just curious if you have at all interacted or if you're aware of like, some of the ideas of Brian Romley and talking about the intelligence amplifier. And I could see how this sort of voice, the synthetic voices could be used to really be a surrogate of like a, a you know, loved one that's passed on and then you, you have a discussion with this person in their voice from data that's been collected over their lifetime. Have you given them any thought to that sort of scenario?
1: you know um we have had some um requests for recreating the voice of typically well-known individuals um it was sports announcers um uh, people that are celebrities and so on so we have engaged in those kinds of projects in terms of um doing that for the everyday person being able to bring back like you know um your your grandmother and, and have an interaction with her about what she experienced um I feel like we haven't really gone there, but it does. This this uh, scenario does come up, and I think one of the things that's really hard for people to imagine is, well, what are all the ethics around it, right? And and what is it? You know, what does that mean? Um, I I think there's a curiosity typically about sort of reconstructing or uh, bringing back from um, from from another era. and I wonder how we do that carefully, responsibly, and yet still learn from it. You know, I think it would be fascinating to do. Um, reconstructing a voice requires, though, good audio, and it. I, I think that's the thing about voice banking. I feel like, you know, we should be banking our voices so that we can do these things in the future. I've asked, you know, I've got my parents to bank their voice. Um, I think it's just, it's really important. But I think we'll have to think through the, the ethical issues and then also all the social implications around that. There's a, there's a lot there.
0: Yeah, no, there certainly is. There certainly is. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking some of your time to, uh, to share your expertise here on the podcast. Um, where can people go to learn more about what you're doing?
1: Yeah. So they can go to vocalid.ai and um, they can explore both enterprise options as well as individual options. And if they're interested in contributing their voice, um, the, the voice bank link is also there.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much. It's It's been a real pleasure chatting with you and I look forward to following along now and seeing what is in the future for Vocal ID.
1: Thanks, Terry. This was wonderful.
0: Really cool technology, huh? Wow, I love what they are doing at Vocal ID. So, a big, big thank you to Rupal Patel for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to hear what she's doing. I think this is really interesting stuff. And boy, there's a lot that can be done in the future with this. And as she raised the issue, you know, ethics are going to come into play here. It's going to be a very interesting world that we're living in where there can be synthetic voices that sound just as good as a real voice and what is that going to mean for us for our society uh, for healthcare, and so on so very fascinating stuff so please be sure to check out the show notes i will have links to uh to vocal id on the show notes and you can access those at voicefirsthealth.com 45 and i look forward to speaking with you again very soon take care have a great week